0: and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. Well, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, who are being saved it's the power of God for it's written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart <laughs> where is the one who is wise where's the scribe where's the debater of this age has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For this foolishness of God is wiser than men and this weakness of God Is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. (laughs) None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written We've received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person Judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Merely servants through whom whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may indeed become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This then is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. But that's not what makes me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Who who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Well, you already have all you want. You've already become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, My beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will soon come to you if the Lord wills. And I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. (laughs) Some say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Yes, and God will destroy both one and the other. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Good morning.
1: Good to see you all here today. Hey, if you're the note-taking kind and you find it helpful to keep all of your sermon notes in the same place, these little scripture journals are available out in the lobby for $2 a pop. Um, On the left side of the page, is the text of 1 Corinthians and then on the right side of the page are ruled lines on which you can take notes. So uh, again they're out in the lobby they'll be there this morning after the service next Sunday and the following Sunday as well unless we're out of them uh, beforehand. So anyway scripture journals helpful for note-taking if that works for you. Well, we are going to introduce ourselves to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. And as I've been uh, reading in it and about it, there's one word that really sums up uh, the whole thing, and that is big, big. In terms of its size, the city of Corinth was big. In terms of its importance, the church at Corinth was big, and in terms of their influence, the problems in the Corinthian church were big. So this morning, by way of introduction, we're gonna look at these three biggies, the city of Corinth, the church at Corinth, and the problems in the Corinthian church. Now, for uh, purposes of self-disclosure at the outset of this series, I simply wanna be clear on a couple of things to begin The book of 1 Corinthians makes me uncomfortable. And it has for years because um, there are threads that run through it that remind me of my past. And when I come across those uh, threads, uh, there's shame and sadness that are churned up in my heart and make me wonder if you would like me if you really knew me. It maybe you can relate with that feeling, not wanting to look at Scripture either in part or in parcel, uh, because it reveals the serpentine twists and turns of your own heart. And in that way, the Bible is like a mirror. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, what does a mirror do? It reveals what you look like, and at times, that's not a pretty sight. But while a mirror can tell me how I look, it can't tell me what to do about it. And that's the beauty of scripture. That's the beauty of 1 Corinthians. Because, and and here's the second thing uh, on which I want to be clear this morning, 1 Corinthians holds out great hope. While this letter speaks to some pretty big problems, the spirit of which can make my anxious heart race, It also speaks of something bigger, an answer to those problems that comes by way, and here's the main point, seeing everything through a new lens. You see, the lens with which we're all born and and through through which we look at life only allows us to see things from a worldly perspective. And while that perspective is initially attractive, a fact to which Paul speaks uh, four times over the first couple of chapters, uh, it ultimately gives way to weakness and to death. But the lens through which we look by way of the Bible allows us to see life from a godly perspective. And while that perspective is uh, uh, unattractive, or to use Paul's words, uh, foolish, It, uh, especially to those still looking through the old lens, the new lens affords a vision not of of weakness, but of power. And not of death, but of life. Uh, A reality that is truly right side up in a world that so often appears to be upside down. So that's the way forward this morning. Big city, big church, Big problems, but bigger answers to those problems by seeing everything through a new lens. Seeing life right side up by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's begin by getting acquainted with the city of Corinth. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it was Big. It had a population that rivaled the size of Athens proper, and it had a broad demographic that included ethnicities from Asia uh, to the east and Europe to the west, as well as economic classes ranging uh, from rich all the way down to poor. Corinth also had a big presence uh, in a number of ways, first in terms of its natural appearance, uh, which was accentuated and still is accentuated for that matter by a giant flat-topped rock that rises 2,000 feet above the city. Now that's 500 feet more than the Woodier Hills. But uh, Corinth sits at sea level. So that 2,000 feet uh, makes it a pretty dramatic uh, uh, showpiece, if you will. Corinth also has a big presence in terms of its architecture. In 150 BC, uh, the Romans came in and destroyed the city. 150 years after that, or rather 100 years after that, Julius Caesar began to rebuild it. 100 years after that, the Apostle Paul came in and planted the church there during a Corinthian Renaissance that was especially known for its symmetrical style of architecture including what you know as a Corinthian column. And then 100 years after that, Corinth was the richest city in Greece. So uh, as I said to someone after first service, it was the uh, Orange County of its day, for those of you who are my age and have seen the development and growth of that part of Southern California. Corinth also had a big presence in terms of its location. It was right between two major seaports. So six miles to the west was the port of Lechium, was situated on the Corinthian Gulf, and was a gateway to Italy and Europe. And then two miles to the east was the port of Sancría, which was situated, situated on the Saronic Gulf and was the gateway to Asia. So Corinth served as a bridge between two worlds and was a crossroads for all different kinds of people. Uh, I'm regularly remembered at the port of Sankria because on my desk I have a rock that I pulled out of the harbor at Sancria. Most people think it's a biscuit, but it's actually a rock, and I have it there on my desk. Corinth also had a big presence in terms of its um, personalities. There are big personalities that made their way through Corinth, like public speakers who, who captivated and entertained large crowds by way of their superior education, their winsome personalities, their oratorical abilities. At the end of a hard day, you and I may sit down and pop up the screen and see what's happening on Netflix or uh, Amazon uh, whatever the Amazon online thing is, you know. Uh, We watch TV is essentially what we do. You couldn't do that in Corinth back in the first century. But they would go out and listen to these well-known and highly polished rhetoricians. Other big personalities included athletes and artists who came from all over to compete in the Isthmian Games. They were held in the years before and after the ancient Olympics and... uh, Uh, were games to which Paul probably referred in chapter nine, verses 24 through 27. The games included racing and boxing and wrestling and an ancient form of MMA called pencration and contests for musicians and poets. Corinth also had big Freedoms. It had big political freedom. In fact, it was in a moment of great enthusiasm during one of the first century Ips- Isthmian games that the emperor Nero declared Corinth to be a free city, which meant that Corinth was free to govern, govern itself and uh, free to issue its own currency, both of which were especially big freedoms in the first century. But Corinth also had big religious freedom, uh, many deities from which to choose, the most popular being Poseidon, who was the uh, god of the sea and to whom the Isthmian games were dedicated, and then there was Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And when I say sex, I mean a love and beauty and passion and pleasure, as well as procreation. Aphrodite was the designated protector of Corinth, as well as one for whom three temples had been built within the city limits, one of which was on top of that imposing rock structure outside the city. So it was overshadowing the people of Corinth. So like the highly visible Hollywood sign here in Los Angeles, the high altitude temple of Aphrodite not only heralded the location, but the lifestyle of the Corinthian people. In fact, Paul wrote his letter to the church at Rome from Corinth and could have very Well, witnessed the depravities about which he wrote in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 through verse 35, by just looking out his window. Concerning the uh, predominant sordid sexual climate there in Corinth, one scholar later wrote Corinth was the ancient city of wealth and luxury and immorality. It was the city of vice par excellence in the Roman world. And so it was in that big city of big appetites, that God used Paul to plant a church which would have a big influence in that day and every day leading right down to the one in which we live. Take note, we are studying this letter. Well, the history of the Corinthian church is found largely in the book of Acts, So if you want to turn back to Acts chapter 18, we'll take a look at three highlights from uh, the history of the Corinthian church. Uh, The first one actually comes out of chapter 17, but the bulk of them are there in chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. Highlight number one, it was not Paul's plan to remain in Corinth. Rather, his plan was to go back to Thessalonica. And we know this because after fleeing Thessalonica to avoid persecution for preaching the gospel, Paul wrote to the Corinthians there these words. He wrote to the, those of Thessalonica these words. Since we were torn away from you, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because... We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. 1 Thessalonians two seventeen and 18. So again, for Paul, plan A was to get back to Thessalonica, not remain in Corinth, where he also faced opposition. And that leads us to highlight number two. It was God's plan for Paul to remain in Corinth. And he accomplished that plan in a couple of ways. First of all, he blessed Paul. And he blessed Paul with uh, the personal friendship and the uh, professional partnership of Aquila and his wife Priscilla. We see that there in chapter 18, verses two and three. He blessed him with a gospel ally in the person of Titius Justice. You see that there in verse number seven. In verse number eight, you see uh, he blessed Paul with a convert in the person of Crispus who of all things was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, the very body that opposed Paul in that place and God blessed Paul with converts throughout the city who had also in verse eight believed and been baptized. So even amidst this opposition, God blessed Paul in these ways. Not only did God cause Paul to remain in Corinth by blessing him, he also kept him there by speaking to him. Take a look at verse number nine. And the Lord said to Paul one night in the vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. So God clearly ordered Paul to press on in his ministry at Corinth by way of words the word speaking the gospel. Now, notice that when things get tough, the Lord didn't tell the apostle to replace his ministry of God's word with a ministry of good works. That's not to say that good works are unimportant or unnecessary in gospel ministry, but it is to say that when it comes to planting and watering and growing God's church, speaking his word is the most important thing. A a strong ministry of works should result in the preaching of the word. But a strong ministry of works does not necessarily result in a strong ministry of the word. In fact, it can entirely exist without one. So it's no wonder to see then in verse number 10 how God encouraged Paul to fearlessly persist in his word first ministry. Read with me there. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So, even in Corinth, a big city with big appetites and big opposition to the gospel from without, most clearly seen here in verses 12 through 17, even there, God would accomplish his work by way of his word. And it's that way today as well and that brings us to highlight number three Paul remained in Corinth instead of going back to Thessalonica we read in Acts 18 11, that he stayed a year and six months doing just what the Lord told him to do teaching the word of God among them so let's now turn back over to 1 Corinthians and as you do Remember that in terms of its size, the city of Corinth is big in a variety of ways. In terms of its importance, the church at Corinth was big since it was God's plan to keep Paul there, establish and build his church, even under opposition, and bless her with great success from within. And that takes us to the third big thing at which we want to look. In terms of their influence, the problems in the Corinthian church were big. Now, we know this because before Paul could address the matters about which you wrote in chapter 7, verse 1, he had to spend the first six chapters, all the stuff that Rick read this morning, he had to spend all of that time addressing a basic problem. So let's begin by um, seeing what the Corinthians' basic problem was not. This is what their basic problem was not. Look at chapter one, verse five. Their basic problem was not due to a lack of spiritual gifts. In every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge. And now down to verse seven. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. So clearly the Corinthian church was endowed with every gift necessary to flourish in their faith. So then what was their basic problem? Well, their basic problem was this. Even though the Corinthians possessed every spiritual gift, Paul could not address them as spiritual people. Take a look at chapter three, beginning in verse one. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, When the church was established, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, all this time later, you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So the Corinthians' basic problem was living life in the flesh, they, they continued seeing everything through the old lens of worldly wisdom instead of the new lens of godly wisdom. That they, they were self-centered and not Christ-centered. They, they were creating a church that was distinctly Corinthian instead of being distinctly Christian. That basic problem led to a bunch of big problems, most of which were rooted in money and sex and power, including divisions between members. We'll see that in chapter one. Arrogance toward authority. We'll see that in chapters four and five. Tolerance of immorality. And not just tolerance, but boastful Tolerance, about which we'll read in chapters 5 and 6. And then a litigious or argumentative spirit, and we'll see that in chapter 6 as well. Once Paul had addressed those things, all the stuff about which Rick read this morning, then he'll be able to uh, uh, speak to the questions that they posed to him in their original letter. So, oh, and those are right here in front of me. Marriage and singleness in verse seven, or chapter seven. Idols and idolatry in chapters eight and nine. Head coverings in the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. And spiritual gifts and corporate worship in chapters 12 through 14. So this church that was once filled with big blessings is now fraught with even bigger problems, which makes me wonder, makes me wonder this. How did the Corinthian church feel after they heard Paul's letter? How did they feel? No doubt there were some who felt ashamed for having sullied the gospel. There were those who were embarrassed over how far gone things had gotten, disheartened in terms of maybe ever again knowing the Lord's smile on their fellowship. They, they felt the way I can feel when I'm confronted with present sins or reminded of those from my past. But as miserable as some felt then, and and maybe you, you feel this morning, those big problems can be eradicated by an even bigger solution seen through the lens of God's word. And we catch just a glimpse of that in the first nine verses of this book, the introduction to this book. So notice how Paul speaks to this problem-plagued church, beginning there in verse two, where he, he reaffirms their identity, first as a church, then as a church sanctified in Christ, and finally as a church comprised of saints, all of which they may have doubted, after hearing this letter. Then Paul greeted them in the grace and peace of God the Father and God the Son, there in verse number three. You might think that Paul would greet them with something other than grace and peace, like a big fat hammer that uh, he lowered over their head. But he didn't. And then Paul thanked God for them. There in verse four, for his manifest grace. In verse five, for his rich endowments. That word there in uh, verse five, enriched, is, is the word from which we get the English term plutocrat, which is one who is powerful and wealthy. And the Corinthian Christians had been endowed with spiritual wealth and power in Christ that was theirs even in their, even in their troubles and their problems. Verse six, his proven presence. Verse seven, the abundant gifts, none of which they lacked. And in verse eight, God's enduring sustenance that would ensure they remain guiltless even to the end. And then throughout the rest of this letter, Paul continues to comfort and encourage these people in a number of ways. I'll just mention two. First in chapter four, verse 14, with this sweet admonishment, he says, I don't write these things to make you feel ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And then in chapter six, beginning in verse nine, uh, verse nine with this uplifting reminder, don't you know that the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of God. So for all the big problems extant there in the Corinthian church, Paul reminds them that the gospel is bigger. In fact, uh, he does so at the end of his letter, chapter 15, and he does so by powerfully explaining the historicity of the gospel, the, the fact of the gospel, and its enduring implications for life throughout all of our days and then even beyond our days. Well as a book, 1 Corinthians still makes me uncomfortable. There are threads in this letter that remind me of my past and and they make me wonder as often as I read them and I think too hard uh, on them how God could love a wreck like me. But there are also threads in this letter that remind me of the Gospel and how God dealt with my past by having dealt with my sin on the cross so that what's been done in Christ and now marked by the Holy Spirit, about which Paul will talk in 2 Corinthians, but marked by the Holy Spirit, can never be undone. Never, even by me when I try and fail in my sinful self. Ruben Metzen was born in San Francisco in 1931. He enlisted in the army to get away from his family and he did three tours in Korea before entirely disappearing. In 1965, Metzen and his brother Wilfred became sole heirs of a massive family trust. Wilfred knew about it, Reuben didn't. Ten years after that, a private detective was made a temporary conservator of uh, Reuben's affairs, and he learned of the trust and he began looking for Reuben. The investigator said, the bank that was handling his trust had hired several investigators to find him without success. They were all set to declare him dead when we showed up and said we thought he was alive. He was very difficult to find because he'd never had a driver's license, he'd never owned a car, and he'd never been married. Well, after searching for three years, a conservator found him living in a boarding house in Detroit. And as you can imagine, uh, Metzen's life had entirely unraveled. In fact, the disparity between Metzen's existence and his inheritance was so great that it it took the conservator three weeks to convince him that he was heir to a fortune. But once he did, there was still the opposition of the judge, and then the opposition of Reuben's brother, who had not seen Reuben in 15 years. Well, when they finally met, um, Wilfred wasn't sure that the man seated before him was, in fact, his brother. His hair was a different color, his body was a different size, and he'd been wheeled uh, into the room in a wheelchair. And then Wilfred remembered that his brother had a mark. He had a birthmark on his back. And so they, they wheeled Metzen back into the judge's chambers where they had him lean forward and they pulled up his shirt. And there was the mark. And this man, Reuben Metzen, who had nothing or thought he had nothing, was now receiving $150,000 a year And upon the death of his stepmother, split with his brother Wilfred a $1.2 million inheritance. Friends, if you bear the mark of the Holy Spirit, then the wealth of what's been done for you in Christ can never be undone. No matter how far gone you may be, even this morning. The Corinthians Learn that by way of this letter. And so will we in the weeks to come. Let's pray. What's a lens through which you're looking at life? Are you looking through the old lens of worldly wisdom? Or a new lens of godly wisdom. For whom are you living? Are you living for yourself? Are you living in the flesh? Or are you living for Christ in the Spirit? Lord, for those of us who know you, no doubt we all started well, and yet there are some today who find themselves wrapped in vines of sin and feel as if they maybe never were Christians to begin with, but they bear your mark. And there were certainly those in the Corinthian church who were so far gone, they probably felt that same way. But through Paul, you encouraged them, you comforted them, you showed them that even bigger than their problems, or rather, as big as their problems were, the gospel was even bigger. So may we take comfort in it this morning. May we find it to to break us free from those uh, vines that may bind us, the sins that hold us back, And may we find a fresh wind, the fresh wind of your spirit filling our sails and moving us forward. Lord, may today mark the beginning of new beginnings for many in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.